Well, let's turn now to God's Word together, and let me invite you to turn to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, and we'll read the first 19 verses of that chapter, 2 Kings 19, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 5, verses 1 through 19, and this is the... um, the story of the healing of Naaman, a leper, who was healed by Elisha. And uh, we'll read this passage up to and including verse 19. So let's hear the word of God together. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. The king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious, and he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He'll surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he says to you, Wash and be clean? And so he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt 
offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. And so he departed from him a short distance. And we'll end our reading there. May the Lord bless his perfect word to us this morning. Well, earlier on, we read from Matthew chapter 18. And in that passage, uh, Jesus told us that unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And by saying that, and by using the metaphor of a father and a child and having childlike faith, Jesus was teaching us of the qualities of faith that are precious in his sight. The quality like unreserved trust, right? A quality like humility, an unhesitating kind of faith, such as a child might have when he hears the words of his father. And it's that kind of childlike faith that is so quick to believe and quick to trust and humble. It is that childlike faith that is precious in the eyes of our Savior. And he also taught us we must be converted in order to have that childlike faith. That is to say, our hearts must be changed by the sovereign power of God, and we must be brought to faith by God, that we will turn from our own pride and self-reliance, which is our sort of natural state of heart, to have that humble and trusting faith of a child of God. Well, this particular episode from Elisha's ministry I think in some important ways powerfully illustrates those points that our Savior made. And so this passage from long ago in Israel's history still declares to us the Savior's call to have childlike faith in him. Now the teaching of this passage in 2 Kings chapter 5 I think takes place by way of a contrast between two characters, two specific characters. And The first one we are introduced to in verse 1 of our text, and it's Naaman, this Syrian general. And what do we know about Naaman? Well, the passage says that he is a a great and an honorable man, that he was a mighty man of valor. So he is, um, you know, uh, he's, he's well known, he's powerful, he's notable. And we also come to see that he's prideful too, isn't he? He's very proud about who he is and where he comes from, right? At the beginning of this passage, as it unfolds, he spurns what the prophet says, you know, and brushes him off. And so he is a, he's a powerful man and he's a prideful unbeliever from outside of Israel. That's the first character. The second character is, um, you might at first think that she is sort of an extra on the set, a minor character in this passage, but his foil in this passage is the slave girl who is mentioned in verse 2, all right? That she had been brought back. She was, in a sense, a spoil of war. She is called a young girl. We're not even told what her name is in this passage, but she was a young girl. She was a servant. And so, you know, in terms of, you know, notoriety, she's on the bottom of the totem pole while he's on the top, right? But what we learn about her is that 
she has faith. She is the one in this passage, and really the only one at the beginning of this passage, who really believes that he could be healed. He said, oh, if only he could go to the prophet, the man of God, he could be healed, right? She, she believes that. But Naaman doesn't believe it, right? And everyone else in this passage doesn't even believe it until it happens, but she does. So the initial contrast of this passage is a great, prideful, powerful unbeliever versus a young servant girl who has... Indeed, childlike faith. In fact, literally, she is a child. But she is the one that trusts that he can be healed from his leprosy. Now, it's very important to note that in the, um, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew teacher, so I'm gonna, I just, I can't help it. I'm gonna throw out some Hebrew words for you, and there will be a quiz after the sermon, too. But how she is described right up front in verse 2, she's called, in Hebrew, na'arakatana, which is literally, a little girl. She is called a little girl. And that's important because as the story unfolds, when Naaman finally humbles himself, and finally follows the directions of the prophet and does what he says, he dips in the Jordan River and he's healed. Verse 14 tells us that he was restored like a na'arkaton in Hebrew, a little boy, which is the exact masculine equivalent of the way the girl was described in verse 2. So we have this little girl with faith at the beginning. And then we see Naaman restored, his flesh being restored to be like that of a little boy, it literally says. And he himself comes to faith. The very same faith that the little girl had at the beginning of the story. And so I think that description, as it's mentioned about her and repeated with him in this whole story of Naaman's conversion, I think the point of the story is that he became like her. Right? They're as far apart opposite as they can be at the beginning of the story, but he became like her, and not just by the healing of his skin and his leprosy, but through the gift of true renewal and the gift of childlike faith, which... Naaman has at the end of the story. He makes his childlike confession of faith in verse 15, doesn't he? And now I know that there is no God in all the earth except Israel. Now he believes just as much as that little girl believed at the very beginning, right? And so this great, powerful, prideful man became like the little child at the beginning of the story and because she was the one that directed him to the true God with childlike faith. Now, as a little more proof from this text that Naaman's renewal was really spiritual and not just physical, you have to follow me a little bit on this one. Verse 14, when it says his flesh was restored like that of a little boy, in that passage, that verb that's used in the Hebrew text is a very particular verb that's almost always translated to return or to repent. And it's interestingly, very interestingly used in this passage to talk about the, let's say, the restoration of his flesh to be like a little boy. But the verb shuv in Hebrew is a verb that is almost always means to return or even more importantly, to repent. And there's a play on this verb in this passage because the same verb is used in verse 15 where it says that he returned to the prophet and when he returned to the prophet, it was to repent, wasn't it? It was to 
express his new confession of faith in the one true God. So the same verb that's used to describe his repentance and returning to the prophet is the very same verb used to describe the restoration of his flesh to childlikeness, right? To be like a little boy. And again, that verb is almost always used by the prophets to signify repentance. Now, I'll take you one more step down the rabbit hole. Follow me with this. Even more interesting than that, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, which is the version of the Old Testament that the New Testament writers quoted and so on, very well-known version of the, of the Old Testament in Greek. In verses 14 and 15, the Greek Old Testament uses the verb epistrepho, which means to convert or to be converted. All right? That is to say, the Greek text says that his flesh was converted to be like that of a little child, interestingly. And that verb is always used for conversion in the New Testament. In fact, that's why I wanted to read Matthew 18, because in Matthew 18, that is the exact verb that Jesus used when he said, unless you are converted and what? Become like a little child. Jesus echoes that that very same string of ideas, the conversion and becoming like a little child, just as we hear it echo in 2 Kings chapter 5. So I think when Jesus said that, he almost certainly had in mind the story of Naaman and how it illustrates our our need, our need, to be converted on the one hand and then to become like a little child, which is exactly what happened to Naaman. Naaman became like a little child, not only his skin being healed, but also in his faith in the one true God. He was converted. Now, it's important to understand that Naaman's leprosy in this passage was real. It's not just an allegory. He really did have leprosy. But the healing of his leprosy became an outward illustration of the inward work of conversion. That's what happens in this text. The renewal of his skin to be like the skin of a child outwardly illustrated the renewal of his heart to have childlike faith. Now this connection is very common in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament very often physical diseases and especially leprosy are often seen as an illustration of the unclean human condition, not just a physical disease, but an illustration of man's greater need, the the, the true sickness that resides in the heart, which is sin. And God's power to heal the body is always used as an illustration of his greater work of cleansing and converting man's soul. And we see this clearly in Jesus' ministry, don't we? He went about healing all kinds of physical sicknesses in his ministry. And the purpose of that was, of course, to show mercy to the person he's immediately dealing with, but the greater purpose of it all is to demonstrate and to prove that he had an even greater power and the willingness to forgive our sins and to renew our hearts. In fact, he said as much. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 9, just before he healed a paralytic man, he said, He explained why he was about to do it. He said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, 
This is what is illustrated in the healing of Naaman in our passage. This is what Naaman learned. And that is what we learned from his story. That the Lord is willing and able to forgive sins, to convert our souls, and to give us childlike faith. And this is the greater healing that we need. Now, we've already seen how it it seems that uh, when Jesus talking about being converted and becoming like a little child, that he may be referencing the story of Naaman in Matthew 18 with a call to us to have the same childlike faith. But you also remember on another occasion, Jesus referenced this story much more explicitly, and that was in Luke chapter 4. And in that scene, uh, Jesus was being opposed uh, by those around him. He was opposed in the synagogue for his teaching in his hometown of Nazareth, actually. And from there, he was determined to go elsewhere, to take his ministry and the gospel elsewhere. And he said to them, as he determined to go elsewhere, he said, many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. In other words, there were many people in Israel who could have received this this healing, who could have been cleansed, but God chose to only heal that one man and a foreigner at that, not even an Israelite. And by saying that, Jesus' point was simply that as it was in Elisha's day, if his ministry was going to be rejected in Israel, then he would go to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what he did. From there, after he said that, he went to Galilee of the Gentiles, or Upper Galilee, and he went there to, to preach and teach among them. But the point that he also made that is reflected in the story of Naaman is that God's grace is a sovereign grace, that it is up to God entirely in his good pleasure who he wills to save. It's all according to his choice and his wisdom. And he chose Naaman to not only heal him, but to give him true childlike faith. That is all illustrated here in Naaman's story. In the story, you remember how the king of Syria sends Naaman with a letter and gifts to the king of Israel and asks him to heal Naaman. But the king of Israel, uh, who is unnamed in this story, but it would would have been Jehoram, who was uh, Ahab's son, what does he do? He tears his clothes and he says, Am I God? Can I heal somebody of leprosy? Right? He, he's trying to pick a fight with me by doing this. Now, Jehoram was a prideful and an evil king. And it's amazing in this story, it did not cross his mind to send Naaman to Elisha. That was the first thought that the little girl had. But it didn't even cross the king's mind. Even a young servant girl knew to send him to the prophet because of her faith. But the king of Israel responded in his own childlike way, right? And not in a positive sense. He, tr- he threw a temper tantrum, basically, in our passage. And he obviously had no trust in God or in God's prophet. So this is the story of not one, but two powerful, prideful men. One is saved, the Syrian general, but the king of Israel remains in his sins. And he is bested by the wisdom of a little girl. And the point is that God is sovereign in salvation. The Lord had chosen Naaman to be one of his children. 
and gave him childlike faith. But he left the king of Israel in his own pride and in his own unbelief. And so the sovereignty of God and salvation looms large in this passage. And that is the very element of the story that Jesus emphasized in Luke chapter 4. Now, there are a few other ways that Naaman's childlike faith comes out in this passage. Remember here in verse 11 and 12, he had a, an angry outburst at the suggestion that he go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. And he pridefully said that the waters of Damascus were far superior uh, to the waters of Israel. But that was the old Naaman. That was the prideful, arrogant, unbelieving Naaman. After his conversion and his confession of faith, he asks the prophet to take two cartloads of dirt with him when he goes home. And the purpose for him doing that was the logic that if he couldn't stay in Israel, then he would take a little bit of Israel with him when he went home in order to create a, a suitable place for sacrifice, a suitable place for himself where he might worship the one true God, because he said, I'm going to take this dirt because I'm only going to sacrifice to the Lord. So that was his motive. So you notice how at first he looked down on the land of Israel, on the waters of Israel, all of that as being inferior. But then at the end of the story, uh, he, he couldn't leave without taking a little bit of that with him. Now, this whole business of like, this land being better than that land, or this water being better than that water. That, 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 that was just superstition and national pride at first, at first. But then his love for the land sprang from true faith. You remember Psalm 102 says of Zion that God's servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. I think we see Naaman doing that in this passage. And what that means is that God's people... Uh, they take pleasure in everything that has to do with Zion, that place where God meets with his people. They take great pleasure in it. Everything is precious to them about that place where God meets with his people. Even the dust of the ground is precious to them. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, that meant the land of Israel. <laughs> that meant the actual physical place. That's why Naaman wanted a few cartloads of dirt to take with him. But in the New Covenant, God meets with His people not in a physical place, but wherever His people gather. He meets with us in the church, in corporate worship. And we see from the example of Naaman that childlike faith produces a love for Zion. I think we see that lesson. A love for Zion, that is a love for that place where God has pledged to meet with His people and a determination to worship the one true God faithfully. That's what we see. That's the change that takes place in Naaman. Zion is now precious to him and he is now determined to be a worshiper of the one true God. Now, in order to accomplish that, Naaman had to take home a bunch of dirt with him to accomplish that goal. But what does that same commitment look like in your life and in mine? Right? We don't need a cartload of dirt from Israel anymore to worship the one true God. But what we do need is to love Zion, right? And to love everything about her. Even the stones and the dust of Zion are precious to us. What that means is we need to love the church of Jesus Christ. 
We need to love everything that has to do with the church and the ministry of Christ, the people, the ministry. It has to be dear and precious to us. We need to take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust, as the psalmist says, and be determined in our hearts to be faithful worshipers of the one true God. Now, regarding Naaman's worship, our passage ends with a somewhat strange request. He asks that when he goes into the temple of Ramon, a false god, worshipped by the Syrians, and he had to do this as part of his job description. He had to go in there with his master, the king of Syria, help him into the temple and uh, hold his hand or whatever it might be. When he bows down, the Naaman had to sort of be there to help him uh, worship in the temple of Ramon. Kind of an odd request. And I think maybe our first instinct would be to expect that the prophet would say, no way, you can't do that. What are you doing? You know, you just said you're going to worship the one true God. No, you can't do that. People who have written and preached on this passage have had a lot of different ideas of whether or not Naaman was doing the right thing or the wrong thing. But his request is met favorably by the prophet. The prophet simply says, go in peace. So I do think we have to look for a positive interpretation. And here's one way to think about it. Perhaps the prophet's permission for Naaman to do this is based upon the same or similar reasoning that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 8 when he talked about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And the issue in that passage is, you know, if you go to the market and you buy meat, you know it was offered to a false god as a sacrifice. Can you buy that meat and can you eat it with a clean conscience? That's the question. And Paul says, yes, you can, as long as you're not offending another person's conscience. But his reasoning was this. All false gods are imaginary. Meat offered to an idol is meat offered to nothing because these false gods don't exist. They're imaginary. So it really doesn't matter. So perhaps Elisha gave Naaman permission to help his master into the temple of Ramon because there is no Ramon. And how this reflects favorably on Naaman's faith is that he was not going to worship the God of Syria and the God of Israel, which so many people did in the ancient world, worship more than one God to try to cover all your bases. Instead, he knew that there was no God called Ramon, and the God of Israel was the only true God. He said so in verse 15. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except Israel. And so uh, whatever this business with the temple of Ramon, he was determined to worship and to only worship the one true God. But I think the main lesson is this, with that whole scenario here at the end of our text, is that our faith is also bound to be challenged in the same way. And what I mean is this. Think about Naaman. He found that the job that he had and the traditions that he came out of in his home culture in the culture in which he lived, that all of these things now presented to him what amounted to a difficult case of conscience. Now he's a believer in the true God. But his, his job description is this, and they, they, people, his, you know, his, his master worships Ramon and all these things. Now what? So he has these difficult case of conscience to deal with. But what did he do? And this is, I think, the bottom line here. 
What did he do? He did the wisest thing of all, which was to seek counsel. He went to the prophet and he asked, didn't he? Just didn't unilaterally decide, well, here's how I'm going to work it when I go home. Here's how I'm going to strike this balance between my faith in the true God and what's expected of me at my job. He went to the prophet and he asked, seeking guidance from the prophet. And that, too, is an element of the changed Naaman, the the childlike faith that he now had. Because earlier in the passage, remember, Naaman pridefully supposed to tell Elisha how to do his job. He said, if you're going to heal me, I expect you to come to me and wave your hand and do all this. And right, He's telling the prophet his job there. That's the old Naaman. But now, the new Naaman, the one who, who now has childlike faith, he comes humbly back to the prophet seeking his counsel. Right? So that's how we can see it as part of this, this childlike faith that he has. So let's ask the question, what does this look like? In our lives. Well, childlike faith does not rely upon its own reasoning, but it seeks out the guidance of the Lord. That's an element of childlike faith. That when we are presented with a question or a difficult case of conscience or whatever it may be, a decision, a life, take your pick, that the first thing we do is seek the counsel of the Lord. We go to the scriptures first, but also we do go to the counsel of pastor or elders or those of, of greater wisdom that God has put in our lives. Again, that is part of the, uh, the faith, the childlike faith that is put on display here in our passage. Now, in conclusion, I want to return to this point of having childlike faith and just very simply, succinctly try to define what it is. Because Naaman illustrates it. Jesus commanded us to have it. So what is it? What are the qualities that make faith childlike? And let me suggest to you, very simply, three things at least. And the first thing is this. Trust. Trust. I think that the most basic understanding of childlike faith has to do with implicit, unreserved trust. Now, children tend to be trusting, don't they? All these little ones here that you see, if you're a parent and you tell them something, they, they believe you, they trust you. It's not their instinct to, to disbelieve you because you're the parent. And so they trust what you say, and that's natural for a child to do that. And that is the, one, of the, one of the elements of faith that we need to have toward God. We need to be trusting not just in a general sense, right? To just be generally trusting of anything and everything is not, not a virtue. But it is key to how we approach the Lord. We must trust Him first and we cannot trust ourselves. That is to say, we cannot trust our thoughts or our opinions or our instincts, our gut feelings. We must implicitly trust the words of our Savior without reservation, like a little child would trust his father. And I think this aspect of childlike faith is best summarized by Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, that great verse that is very familiar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And I think that summarizes what childlike trust is. And that is essential to childlike faith. The second element, I think, is dependence. Dependence in a good way, where we are consciously 
and daily dependent upon the Lord. And we know that we are. Now, this whole metaphor of the child-parent relationship is very appropriate in this way because children, young children, are completely dependent upon parents, aren't they? Utterly dependent. The IRS even calls them that on your tax return, right? Dependents. How many dependents do you have? That, that's what they are. They are dependent. And so I think this thing, of this, this imagery of childlike faith is highlighting dependence, conscious, unreserved dependence upon the Lord. We must be mindful of the fact that without Christ, we would be utterly and completely lost. We would be nothing and nowhere without him, still dead in our sins. And so in this regard, we must be like children before our Heavenly Father, just with that conscious confession and awareness of our utter dependence upon him alone and the thankfulness that comes with that, recognizing that what we need is so richly provided to us by our Father. And finally, I would say childlike faith um, envisions a certain simplicity of faith, a simple faith. How is that illustrated, I think, in Naaman's story? Well, Naaman is a brand new convert. He didn't know much, but he knew there was one true God in Israel. That much he knew. He knew as much as the little girl at the beginning of the story. But it was saving faith. He understood and knew the true God and placed his faith in him. So there is a, just a simplicity to his faith that is focused upon the being and the works of God. He knew that and he believed that. And it wasn't any more complicated than that for Naaman in this story. Now, that does not mean that we should be content to know the bare basics of the gospel without growing in knowledge. Growing in our knowledge of the truth, our knowledge of God and our knowledge of his word is part of the Christian life. And that's a constant duty that we have. That we are to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're called not just children of God, but disciples. What is a disciple? It's a learner. It's a student. That's what you are. That's what I am. We are to learn all the time and be growing in our knowledge. And there's a lot to learn because the truth of God is deep and it is glorious. It's not simplistic and minimal. There's a lot for us to know and to discover. So childlike faith does not mean contentment with just a little bit of knowledge. But it does mean this. It means this. And this is important. It means no matter how much you do know, or how much you do grow in your knowledge of God's word or theology or whatever it may be, uh, you, you may grow and, and know plenty of things. But the basic truth of the gospel in all of its power and all of its simplicity is to be at the core of your soul and is to be at the core of your thinking and is to be there much in your mind. It should never cease to move you with amazement the simple fact that God the Father calls you a child and does so because he showed his love for you by giving you his only begotten son to die for your sins. That in its core and essence, that, that simple gospel message is the basic reality upon which we live and die. And so, a simplicity of faith in the true gospel of Jesus Christ is something that is at the heart of childlike faith. And those three, I think at least, are the elements of 
childlike faith that we see illustrated in 2 Kings chapter 5. When we see this proud and powerful man who has leprosy, who has that outward representation of the, of the darkness and sinfulness of his heart, where he is converted, and not only his flesh, but his heart is restored to be just like a little child. He was humbled to trust and to depend upon the one true God with a simple and a sincere faith. Now, I want to conclude by exhorting you and encouraging you to examine yourself today and take this call of Christ to have childlike faith and ask yourself, have you received Christ like a little child? Have you received him in that way? And by that I mean, do you trust him implicitly instead of trusting yourself? Do you depend upon him entirely instead of being sort of self-dependent? Do you love him with a simplicity and a sincerity that we see in a child's love for his father? This is the faith that Christ desires of us This is the faith to which he calls all of us today. And those are the ones to whom he promises the kingdom of heaven. So let that be our prayer and our commitment today together, that we might receive Christ today, even as a little child. Well, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them unto babes such as we are. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. It seemed good in your sight to give us such grace that we might be called children of God, and we rejoice to be called your sons and daughters. But Father, now we pray that you might give that very thing that you command, that you might enable us to receive Christ each and every day with childlike faith, Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us that trust in you, that dependence upon you, and that love for you, which Christ calls us to have. And all of these things we pray in his good and precious name. Amen.